0: Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. We'll be in verses 8 through 10 today. 1 Thessalonians 1. This is the sort of text, I suppose, what did I expect since the Apostle Paul wrote it? This is one of those texts that uh, I thought, oh, this will probably be a, a brief sermon. And I get into it and I thought, I'm going to have to cut this short. (laughs) So, we'll see how this goes. Paul has a way, as the Spirit of God bore him along in this process, he has a way of packing so much into so few words. And there's significance in every jot and tittle here. So, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8-10. through Titled the sermon, The Impact of Repentant Faith. The Impact of Repentant Faith. Since it's been a little while, since we were last here in chapter 1 of this epistle, I want to just read verses 1-7 through as we start out, and remind you of what Paul is doing. He's he's expressing his thanksgiving to God for the Thessalonian church, which is, it's a young church, it's faced many uh, stark difficulties in its early months, but it remains steadfast as a church of Jesus Christ. Though Paul had to leave town suddenly before he was ready to leave them uh, due to persecution. Uh, Starting in verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Well, our sermon text today is just really the further explanation and extension of those first seven verses where we saw that the gospel doesn't, um, we saw what the gospel does, pardon me, we saw what the gospel does in transforming the elect. Paul said, we know God has chosen you and that he loved you from before the foundation of the world because this is the effect the Gospels had in your life. It didn't just come to you in words and that was it. It came to you in the power of the Holy Spirit of full conviction of the truth of the Gospel. And we talked about how that looked in their lives. Though they were in much affliction, they had the joy of the Holy Spirit and they were an example to everyone around them of what the Gospel should do in people. So from that first section of the chapter, we saw the perseverance the gospel works in deeds from new hearts. Paul talked about their their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Uh, We saw the power the gospel brings of assurance in the Holy Spirit. And we saw the pattern the gospel produces of joy through hardship. So just continuing those thoughts, verses 8-10... through speak of this transformation now as a turning, a radical about-face because the object of worship has changed. So that'll be a key word here. Turning. As I said, it's a radical about-face as their object of worship has changed. So I think I'd like to just put the big idea of the text this way. When people believe the gospel, that belief radically turns them around we'll get much more specific what we're saying there. But that's the big idea. When people believe the gospel, that belief radically turns them around. That's the idea here. So let's read verses 8 through 10 where we see that. So further explanation, we see that word for at the beginning, indicating Paul is elaborating more on what he just said. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. See what I meant about a lot packed into a a small space. Let's explain the text, and then um, it'll probably take a while to get through explaining the text. But I do have some brief uh, closing applications as well after that. Um, first of all, verses eight through well, verse eight through the beginning of verse nine, we see that these believers were famous for the gospel's impact upon them. They were famous for the gospel's impact upon them. Not only as the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, so the northern and southern Roman provinces in Greece there, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that, and Paul uses a little, you know, uh, typical exaggeration, hyperbole, so that we need not to say anything. Of course, they didn't stop Paul from preaching. (laughs) He's just saying um, in a happy way, It's, it's like we don't have to say anything wherever we go, because of what the gospel did in you and how people have heard about it. For they themselves, people everywhere, that is, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Everyone knows what happened when we came to town with the gospel and and what effect the gospel had in Thessalonica. And it's not just even in these large provinces around you. It's gone forth everywhere. could be, for instance... um, Perhaps at this point, Paul is already in Corinth and has met Aquila and Priscilla, who recently came from Rome. Perhaps they'd heard about it in Rome. Um, that's very possible. But uh, what, however this happened, we don't have all, all the details. But apparently, Paul uh, and his companions run into people who have heard through the grapevine about the Thessalonian Christians. Before Paul ever, ever uh, met them. So the source and impact of the Thessalonians' repentant faith were now well known. Notice it calls the gospel message the word of the Lord, which had spread abroad from Thessalonica. Um, So the gospel message itself had spread abroad, but so did the story of their repentant faith in that message. It says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. The message and their response to the message, both things are famous everywhere. People everywhere heard of the impact the gospel had made upon these former pagans. But again, Paul uses the Old Testament phrase here, the word of the Lord, to emphasize the fact that just like the message of the Old Testament prophets, this apostolic gospel was not just words of men, it was the word of the Lord God. And as the Lord had said even in the Old Testament, his word would not return to him void, it would accomplish the purpose for which he sent it out. And that's on display here in the Thessalonians' experience. This also ties into the clear confession of Jesus of Nazareth as Lord. Um, Paul uh, switches back and forth very, very easily from talking about the word of the Lord and talking about the Lord Jesus in his epistles. And so Jesus of Nazareth is truly the Lord God, the great I Am of the Old Testament, now also truly man. And so he's God with us. So the word of Jesus Christ is the word of God, because Jesus is Lord. There's uh, that all bound up here a little bit, too. So 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the next chapter will also say, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. When it says the word of the Lord had sounded forth from Thessalonica, the the Greek wording and tense there have sounded forth, it it simply implies that the sound of the gospel had reverberated farther and farther with lasting effects. People often observe we get our English word echo from this word. Um, It had reverberated and kept going with lasting effects too. So as G.K. Beale puts it in this pithy little statement, he says the new Christians in Thessalonica and the surrounding countryside could not keep a low profile about their faith. (laughs) They couldn't keep a low profile about their faith. And that was a good thing. So these believers were famous for the gospel's impact upon them. Secondly, we notice the second part of verse nine, the gospel turned their allegiance from false gods to the true God. The gospel turned their allegiance from false gods to the true God. Now, the pagan Gentiles would never have called their objects of worship idols. That's not what they called their deities. Um, They called them gods. They talk about the gods. But the Jews and now the Christians referred to these false gods as idols, empty images. As Paul affirms elsewhere evil spirits or demons were the ones masquerading as gods but the gods as they supposedly were you know Zeus as he supposedly was um, the gods of Egypt as they supposedly were etc they didn't exist those those personages did not exist as such and their images were lifeless, worthless pictures of fake gods that's the idea of using the term idols for them they're, they're useless to serve because they're they're not true gods they're fake gods and and th- there's these lifeless images that are supposed to represent them they're just idols Jeffrey Wyman in his commentary um, is um, I like how he parks on this here about what it must have meant to turn to God from idols in Thessalonica He says the conversion of the Thessalonians is described in deceptively simple terms, how you turn to God from idols. Yet in a society where cultic, he's talking about worship, where cultic and social activities were intimately connected, there was nothing simple about turning to God from idols. Such a total renunciation of all pagan deities also meant a complete rejection of a variety of social events closely associated with the worship of these gods. Such action by Christians evoked feelings of resentment and anger in their non Christian family members and friends. The exclusivity of these Christians, or this weird cult, click, was the idea. Their seemingly arrogant refusal to participate in the worship of any god but their own deeply wounded public sensibilities and even led to charges that they were atheists. That was the term the Romans eventually. Used as a slur for the Christians. They're atheists. They're against the gods. They don't believe in the gods. Citizens of Thessalonica worried whether the gods, whose home on Mount Olympus they could see a mere 50 miles away to the southwest, might punish the whole city for the sacrilegious actions of a few by sending disease, famine, or other natural disasters. Turning from idols also meant a rejection of the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor thereby potentially jeopardizing Thessalonica's favored status with Rome and the emperor. The conversion of the Thessalonian Christians involved a truly radical break with their previous way of life, a break that naturally incurred the resentment and anger of their fellow citizens, as it mentions in chapter 2, verse 14. So yes, don't think of this in modern terms. Oh, someone... Someone um, maybe was was into spiritism and they stopped, and they turned to God. Well, that's a wonderful thing if today someone turns from that in our context, but it still wasn't isn't the same in our context quite as when all of society, all of citizenship, all of family life is bound up with idol worship, <laughs> and it's not a pluralistic society in the sense that people can just can just. Um, choose whether or not they want to be idol worshipers. Everyone's expected to be. So this showed the real power of the gospel when these pagans turned to God from idols. And it says they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That word for serving the living and true God is not just a generic word for service. It's based on that word for a doulos, a slave. It's a word that, that was used in the Greek Old Testament for absolute allegiance to God. And then, then as Paul, of course, used it in the noun form, I'm the slave, the bondservant of the Lord Jesus. There was this absolute commitment and worship of one God now. One triune God. <clears throat> and it particularly here references the fact that they turned to serve God the Father because then it'll talk about his son as well, whom, whom they are awaiting. As Matthew Poole Riley comments here, uh, he mentions um, many profess the true God, but serve him not. But that wasn't the Thessalonians. They didn't just have a profession, uh, a claim, oh, I've switched gods. They actually were serious about it. Now their lives were devoted to this bond service, this absolute commitment to this one true and living God. Let me take you to the Old Testament text that many people think Paul has in mind here as he speaks of the living and true God. That's a unique phrasing that seems to come from Jeremiah chapter 10. So let's go to Jeremiah chapter 10. It has a lot of connections to this text. Both um, that phrasing of the living and true God, but also the context of turning from idols. That's all in Jeremiah 10 uh, in a unique way. Let's just quickly read. I'm not going to comment a lot, but I'm just going to quickly read down through the first 16 verses. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord, You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations, for this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord, here it is, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. There's another connection point here to the fact that the next verse in Thessalonians is going to talk about the wrath to come. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And there's the theme of wrath again if you jump down to verse 25. Verse 25. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name. For they have devoured Jacob, and they have devoured him and consumed him, and have laid waste his habitation. It does seem um, to many, because of the unique wording of Paul, that he's getting it, that he somehow has Jeremiah 10 specifically in mind here. And it ends with saying to God, pour out your wrath on those who worship idols and not you. Those who don't know you. Because they've afflicted your people. <laughs> but there's another theme from the Old Testament prophets that's also being worked out in the Thessalonian Christians here. Because even people from the pagan nations, the prophets said, would one day seek the true God. That's what the prophets had predicted and that's what the Thessalonians were experiencing. In fear of God's wrath, they were throwing away their idols. And now they're prepared for the wrath to come. Isaiah 2, for instance, starting in verse 1, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And farther down that text, it talks about the day of God's wrath that's coming. Verse 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Again, verse 18, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. See, if you dig a little bit, in Paul's writing, basically anywhere, you dig a little bit, you'll strike oil. Or in other words, you'll find out Oh, he's, he sees his gospel ministry as the Old Testament being fulfilled. <laughs> and these Gentiles, they don't have to wait for the day of the Lord to come in all its fury. They have heard about the wrath to come and in holy fear, they've repented and they've tossed their idols. <laughs> they've realized their idols are worthless, but now they know the living and true God. So as we'll see in a minute, They're ready for the wrath to come because it won't be directed at them. They're safe in Jesus. But third, as we work through the text, verse 10, the gospel turned their hope from dead idols to the living Savior. Here Paul is picking up again on that theme of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ that he mentioned earlier in the chapter. This future focus. The gospel turned their hope from dead idols to the living Savior. Verse 10, not only had they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, but they'd also turned to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Matthew Poole mentions, they did not only turn to the true God in opposition to the heathen, but to the son of God as the true Christ in opposition to the unbelieving Jews. Jews. You remember the context in Thessalonica, how the synagogue had been uh, one of the primary persecutors of the church there. Um, In fact, that synagogue had sent people to follow Paul to Berea and persecute him there, too. Stir up trouble for him there. But these people, some of them Jews, some of them having been god fearing Gentiles already, but most of them having been pagan Gentiles, um, these Thessalonicans. Uh, knew what many of the Jews didn't want to hear. That Jesus is God's Son. And He is the Messiah. He is the Lord of all. And He will come to judge the living and the dead. And He was their hope. It says, to wait for His Son from heaven. Of course, that refers to Christ's second coming. This eager anticipation... Even, and think about this, even in Paul's day, not the idea that, well, we know we're in the early church, and uh, we believe there'll be a second coming someday, but it's going to be thousands of years away, and uh, we're not all that concerned about that now. We have work to do. No. They're eagerly awaiting, they're anticipating God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. As Robert Kara says, to wait includes an ethical component. It encourages us to lead, to lead holy lives, motivated by our concern to honor Christ when He returns. We want to live in such a way that that we have um, we are able to to present the results to Christ when He returns, just like those faithful servants in the parables. Right? That's part of awaiting Christ. Also, Robert Kara says to wait emphasizes the hope of the joys that are associated with Christ's second coming. We wait because that'll be our, our highest joy ever, to see Jesus face to face. It'll be, to use the metaphor the Scripture uses, our wedding day and the wedding feast of the Lamb. It'll be our greatest joy ever, but it also will never fade after that because we will always be with the Lord. That's why we await God's Son from heaven. And, again, Matthew Poole, the certain time of his coming is kept secret, that the saints in every age may wait for it. There is a sense in Jesus' teaching that he does say um, there will be a period when the church has to fulfill her mission, but he also is very careful to say, you do not know the day or the hour when I will return. You cannot predict that. Yes, work for me, but also be ready for me. The early church understood that. Now, there's something striking here, too. If you think carefully about what Paul is saying, he's talking about the, the evidence of the gospel at work in these people's lives. And what was, what were the, the outstanding effects of the gospel? And so, as Gary Shogren puts it, the gospel message is inherently, here's that, this big term, eschatological it's inherently about the end times, in a sense. Because believers await the future intervention of God through His Son. That's what believers do. They await God's Son from heaven. What did the Gospel do in them? Well, it turned them from idols to serve the living and true God. But the Gospel should, wherever it goes, make people who are awaiting Jesus' return. The Gospel is inherently also preparing people to meet the returning Christ. And, for instance, that's also why, um, even if you're just talking about eschatology, the last things, um, true believers can have a lot, lot of disagreement about the details, and yet... People can be true heretics in the full sense of the word if they deny certain things about the return of Christ. If people deny the bodily resurrection from the dead when Christ returns, if they deny the coming judgment day, if they deny Christ's bodily and public coming in glory, they're heretics. It directly undermines the intended effect of the gospel. And the whole point that we must be ready for judgment day by believing the gospel. I could go on, but that's, that's just... I'm just putting that in there for free quickly. <laughs> but we can be confident <clears throat> in awaiting God's Son from heaven because, as Paul says, God has already raised him from the dead. His Son whom he raised from the dead. If God raised Jesus... He will raise those who belong to Jesus when Jesus returns. And if God raised Jesus, then that vindicates Jesus. He certainly will come, as he said, to judge the living and the dead. And this comes out, um, Well, the first part of that comes out later in in this epistle here. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, Paul says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Our confidence in the resurrection of believers, the bodily resurrection of believers, is based in the bodily resurrection of Christ. God's already done it for his son. And then as far as what Jesus' resurrection says about the coming judgment day, Paul said in Athens around the same time period, Acts 17.30, <clears throat> the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all. He's put the world on notice that this is a thing. Judgment day is coming. How has he done it? By raising him from the dead. Now. These Thessalonian believers are awaiting God's Son from heaven. So they're awaiting, awaiting on Him to return from heaven. And God's Son is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And it's actually, um, I won't get into the technicalities here, but uh, you could translate it, He delivers us, but it's not really a verb, it's, it's more like a title for Him. He's the one, He's the deliverer, or the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this is quite a broad statement. In Jesus, in the, in the fact that Jesus has already redeemed us, he's already saved us at the cross, in that he already has delivered us from the wrath to come, right? We could talk about it presently. Jesus is now delivering his people, rescuing them from the coming wrath. We could talk about it in the future. When Jesus returns, he will take us to himself and thus And glorify us. And thus he will deliver us from the wrath to come. This is quite a broad statement. Jesus is the one who delivers us. In all his saving work. Past, present, and future. He delivers us. From the wrath of God that's coming on the world. But what is the wrath to come? I have to just just pause here. Because I know. um, Some like me may have had some things in their background. Some teaching that um, did some interesting things with this little with verses like this. Um, some, uh, some dispensationalists specifically, uh, who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture where they separate the second coming of Christ into two, two separate events, they will want to say that verses like this are telling the church that God, God will rapture them out of the, the world before a seven year period of tribulation. And that's the wrath to come, this time on earth. Uh, obviously, that's a whole subject all its own. But we need to be very clear on what Paul's talking about when he says the wrath to come. It's, it's really pretty simple. It's not this complicated uh, thing to figure out from Scripture about a seven-year time period in the future. The wrath to come is simply judgment day when God's wrath will be fully poured out on sinful men before his throne of judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5, later on, it uh, again talks about how the wrath of God will come in connection with Christ's second coming. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Speaking of unbelievers. But you, you believers, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So we jump down to verse 8 of that text, and Paul says, But since we belong to the day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, we believers are waiting for Christ to return so that whether we have died before then and we're asleep or we're awake and we haven't died yet, either way We will rise in glorified bodies to live with Christ. The event of Christ's return will be our salvation, but that same event will be the wrath of God for everyone else. John the Baptist used a a similar, it's not the same in Greek, but still the same thought, a similar phrase. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> who warned you to flee, again, with all the love of my heart for my dispensational brothers. He's not saying, who warned you to flee from the seven-year tribulation. <laughs> he's saying, who warned you to flee from judgment day? And he goes on to say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And a few verses down, he talks about the Messiah who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, whose winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Again, talking about hellfire. Talking about damnation as the wrath of God. The wrath to come, in fact, as John puts it. Or Paul says in Romans 2, verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here he defines... What's this coming wrath? It's the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Or Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Or Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And there it's very similar wording to what Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Why is the wrath of God coming? It's because of people's sins. And there's a day of reckoning coming. One last text. Revelation 11. Um, when it's time for the second coming, there are those in heaven saying, The nations raged, but your wrath came, God. Your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So what is it for the wrath of God to come in the future? It's the time for the dead to be judged. Judgment Day. Okay. Well, once again, as Paul speaks of Jesus, the deliverer from the coming wrath. He seems to echo the Greek Old Testament, where these two concepts of wrath and a deliverer or a redeemer come together. And for sake of time, I won't uh, read the whole text, but go to Isaiah 59 sometime. Or in verse 18, it speaks of God repaying wrath to his adversaries. But then in the next breath, it says, and it's the same term Paul uses for the, the deliverer here. It says a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Now, as we've worked through most of the text, let's take a step back a little bit. And again, Mr. Wyman has good, um, good thoughts here of application. He says, some contemporary Christians emphasize only serving God in the present and so fail to anticipate the glorious return of Christ in the future. Others stress the second coming and the new world order to such an extreme that they devote little thought or energy to serving God in this world. In contrast, the Thessalonians' passion for serving God and so living a holy life in the present is matched by their fervent hope in the future return of his Son. So don't believe the caricature that if if you are consumed with eager anticipation for the second coming, you're not going to be doing God's work in the world right now. Don't believe it. In the Thessalonians' case... They had both. They were, they had absolute allegiance to God now, serving Him where they found themselves now in this world. They did not neglect service to God in the present. They were absolutely devoted to that, but they were also absolutely awaiting the second coming of Christ. The two go hand in hand. In fact, if you're not eagerly awaiting the Lord to return, you will not serve him now as you ought to do. As Jesus said in the parables, you'll start to say, my Lord delays his coming and you'll start to abuse what he's given you. So applying this text, let me say um, three things here. And they should be very predictable from what we've said so far as we've outlined the text. First of all, Christians, expect a reputation for your faith. Christians, expect a reputation for your faith. Don't let yourself desire to keep a low profile as a Christian. I think sometimes from the way we talk and the way we live... Sometimes, in one way or another, we do slip into a desire to actually be very low profile before the world. Not, not be too loud about our faith. <laughs> but don't even begin to think like that. God made you his own so that you would stand out in a perverse world. That's the glorious thing he did for the Thessalonians. He didn't intend them to be quiet Christians hidden off in a corner That the world didn't know about. Sure they. Provoked people all around them. To misunderstand them. And to resent them even. By their testimony. But people knew the gospel because of them. What about us? Do we intentionally do things. To just not be too. Out there about our faith. Well. Well. What's your job description as a Christian? It's to let people know who you serve and what his, his gospel is. That's the job. Don't be afraid of it. As Paul told the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus says that right after saying in the Beatitudes, you're blessed when people persecute you because of me. So he's encouraging his disciples, let your light shine. God will accomplish his work that way. So this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It's pretty good theology. Second thing. Who said Christians? got the word in here? Christians expect a reputation for your faith, but Christians embrace a change in your allegiance too. Embrace a change in your allegiance. This will change your values and priorities because those things are ultimately a matter of worship. Who or what you worship is that which you most value, and it's what determines all your other values and priorities secularism lies about that everyone worships something and it determines everything else about them ultimately as it gets worked out in their lives your change in allegiance will change what you do and it doesn't matter whether you were saved out of a Christian home or a pagan home or whatever your change in allegiance will change what you do because you now render unreserved service to the living and true God That changes not only what you do, what you pour yourself into day in, day out. It also changes how you do it and why you do it. So embrace all of this. You've been saved from your old futile way of life, slaving for sin and for its fake objects of worship. Work out that salvation and all its implications for your life and be eager and thorough in your service to the real God. See, the problem is not that God hasn't revealed ways in which we can serve Him. More often, the problem is we still act as if we have this honorary title of, yeah, I'm God's servant. That's an honorary title. <laughs> I have it on a plaque here on the, on the wall. But I'm, I don't actually have a job description to go with that title. Oh, yes, you do. It's not an honorary title. You're a God's servant, which means you serve. You serve God. We act as if our real job is just our role in the home or our employment or our earthly vocation, but our real job is actually something that in, it includes all that, but it's much bigger and much higher. It's our vocation, our calling as a Christian. And so, as Paul says in Romans 12, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Because we can be slothful, lazy in our zeal. And our spirits can be, uh, well, depending how you um, look at that, whether he's talking about the Holy Spirit or our spirits, but either way, we can not be keeping in step with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or we can in our spirits grow cold, But Paul says, don't let that happen. Serve the Lord with zeal. And third, as we close here, Christians, anticipate the arrival of your Savior. Anticipate the arrival of your Savior. And that point, of course, will be developed a lot more in these epistles as we get to other texts. But it deserves emphasis each time it shows up. To be a Christian... Is to be someone who can hardly wait to see and be with Jesus Christ. That's why there's this emphasis here. Not not because we're (laughs) it's not because we're so fascinated with prophecy charts. Okay? It's because we actually love Jesus. And if we love him, we want to see him and we want to be with him. That's why. To be a Christian is to be someone who can hardly wait to see and be with Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is not something that we Christians individually or the church as a whole can experience or accomplish in this present age. No, our blessed hope, as Paul says, Titus 2, is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul could say in 2 Timothy 4, 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but who will get the crown of righteousness? He says, also to all who have loved his appearing. What is it to be a Christian who can be confident they will receive the crown of righteousness at the last day? For one thing, it's to be someone who loves Jesus appearing, his return in glory. To have that as the object of our affection and our hope. So I trust there is plenty here for us to learn from the Thessalonians example. And it would be good as we uh, as families, as we celebrate Mother's Day. It'll be good for us to talk about the good example many of us have had in our mothers. Or in mothers in our families. But you know what? If we're Christians, we are all examples for good or for bad. And the Thessalonians... Were wonderful examples to all the believers around them. And we need to ask ourselves are we following their example and the example of the Lord here? Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel and for what it does to us. Thank you that you've rescued us from empty, useless worship and chasing after useless things that cannot save us. Thank you that we know and serve the living and true God and we are waiting for his son to come for us from heaven. Thank you for this blessed hope. Please stir it up in us, stir up that hope within us more and more. So that we will live now the way we ought to live for our Lord and Master, our Savior, who will deliver us and who has delivered us from the wrath to come. We pray this in his name. Amen.